I'd like to address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great and, as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The Barnum Museum has a unique treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to millions of ordinary people, as well as royalty and high society. These letters offer a unique glimpse into the life of P.T. Barnum as a husband, father, mentor, and entrepreneur. Join us as we travel back in time and learn about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum through his own words. If you enjoy this episode, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to our podcast to help our rankings and support the Barnum Museum. And now, on with the show. A new chapter for a new year. A new chapter is about to begin in P.T. Barnum's business life, as we learn from a group of letters he composed, appropriately, on New Year's Day in 1846. Barnum had just arrived in Edinburgh, Scotland, after two days in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, where General Tom Thumb performed. Even in their brief time there, Barnum had managed to write several letters to correspondents in America, but no sooner were these crossing the ocean than a new batch requiring answers was delivered to him in Scotland. Once again, he set to work with pen in hand. As he mentioned in a brief letter to Brother Drew, All my American letters came today and must be answered before nine this evening, or they are too late for this steamer. Barnum had a great deal on his mind as a result of receiving those letters from America, and he let Brother Drew know that he could not possibly support his money-making scheme, for I am more than two-thirds crazy already with the multiplicity of my affairs on both sides of the Atlantic, and should absolutely go mad if I should engage in more. In addition to business matters, Barnum was also concerned about his wife Charity's forthcoming confinement, the term commonly used when referring to the time of childbirth. Specifically, he was worried about her fears and anxiety, and her despondency over the recent death of her sister due to childbirth complications. Barnum felt tortured by the difficult decision whether to cross the Atlantic in midwinter in order to be with his wife, a risk which could prove fatal. As he explained to her, I never was in such a quandary as I am at this moment about going home. I have stayed so late that it is absolutely dangerous to attempt to cross the Atlantic, and if I should do so and meet with serious accident, you would always regret having advised me to go. Even so, he told her, he might still decide to take the steamer that would leave in early February. But his anxiety about heading home had recently been amplified by General Tom Thumb's parents, Sherwood and Cynthia Stratton. He explained the situation to Charity thusly. Stratton's folks stand upon their dignity immediately and say that if I go, they shall expect to have the whole of the profits. Even that I would not care much about if it was not for humoring them, by giving them what does not justly belong to them. Summing up his feelings on the matter, he continued, As it is, I don't know one moment's peace. I am harassed day and night with the thoughts of family and business in America. 
I may muster courage to go off my steamer of 4th February, profits or no profits, but still I can't help thinking such a step would be foolish and uncalled for, and I shall not therefore probably leave till March. He tried to calm her fears, advising that she get two doctors lined up in case one was called elsewhere, and reminded her, You have friends, and every worldly comfort about you, and by having the very best medical advice, you will, with God's blessing, get along as well as if I was there. He also encouraged her to get whatever she needed. I apprehend no danger at all for you if you have good nurses and good medical advice, and as you have everything requisite to command these, of course you will procure them in advance. The end of this letter to Charity brings the surprise news that Barnum was now the owner of the former Peel's Museum in New York, and that another museum purchase was imminent, if not yet complete. Allenson Taylor, the rather exasperating, set-in-his-ways uncle toward whom Barnum demonstrated patience and concern while exercising prudence in regard to business and money matters, had apparently taken steps to acquire Peel's Baltimore Museum. The New York Museum had been owned by Rubens Peel, while the Baltimore one was owned by his brother Rembrandt Peel. We had a hint that something was up with Uncle Allenson several episodes ago when, it appears, Charity had alerted her husband that he might not, in fact, be applying himself solely to the cloth trade as he had led them to believe. Barnum had asked Hitchcock to check that out and let him know. Barnum's letter briefly informed Charity, I have bought Peel's Museum, and expect before this that the Baltimore Museum has also been bought, and if so, Uncle Allenson is there but the whole is bought in my name and will be under my full direction, and I shall put a proper person there with Uncle Allenson. Barnum then responded to Hitchcock. I sent off my letters to you from Newcastle two days ago, but have this morning received yours of December 15th. Sorry to hear that the orangutan is dead, but it paid well. I hope that the Baltimore Museum business may be correctly arranged. If Taylor has bought it, I suppose he expects me to be an equal partner with him, which is all right, but the title had better remain in my name, and indeed I shall expect to have a faithful man there with Taylor to represent my interests. Barnum wisely decided to clarify his view of managing the situation, and continued, These few lines are intended for no eye but yours, and they are written merely to show you that I shall do business with Mr. Taylor in a business manner, and the same as if no relation existed, that in fact being the only proper way for friends or enemies to get along correctly. However, I do not wish to say much upon the matter till I hear from him and get his ideas on the subject. I received no letter from him by this steamer, but hope by the next to have the full detail of his plans and expectations, and trust that they will be such as I can coincide with. Regarding the outlay of funds, Barnum reassured Hitchcock, you have done perfectly right in advancing the money to purchase the whole in my name, for if worse comes to worst, the stock will be worth the cost, though I hope to be able to make it pay well when I get my guns to bear, so as to make American Museum attractions tell there, and as you say, that will lessen their cost to us at our museum. His mind was already racing ahead to the challenges and benefits of managing attractions at two museum venues separated by 200 miles. Barnum had related in a previous letter his attempt to purchase a model of Venice for 50 pounds. Now the asking price of 100 pounds no longer seemed a deterrent. He explained, Under consideration that I have now a finger in the Baltimore Museum, 
I am sure soon to buy the model of Venice, even if I give the 100 pounds, for its actual cost was 2,000 pounds, and it's worth more than the 100 pounds to the two museums. This musing was followed by a cascade of ideas. Had I not better buy a pair of lanterns for dissolving views and send them so that Taylor could use a part of our views in Baltimore? Will it not be best to send Foster so that we can spare him to the Baltimore Museum in case we don't want him at our own? The moment that I know that the Baltimore is nailed, that moment I think I shall buy a pair of lanterns, more views, and send Foster. We might sell our physioscope that Swift made to Baltimore Museum. I will have Jefferson and Liberty send to Paris for the trumpets. In fact, Barnum was realizing he needed to pay more attention to documenting the costs and expenses of the novelties and attractions he had been sending to the American Museum, telling Hitchcock, I have made no minute of them. To offset this apparent negligence, he made a point of saying, Indeed, it's a blessing to you that I am in this country. Otherwise, novelties from here would be hard to get and cost a heap when they were got. The same letter also contains a reference to the partially conjoined twin infants in France, whom Barnum hoped to bring to America. Before leaving Paris, Barnum had tasked translator Monsieur Pinta with persuading the girl's parents of the exceptional opportunity he offered. Barnum himself had failed to convince them, but perhaps a native Frenchman could do so. His comment to Hitchcock suggests sad news, the failing health of the twins, but that his strategy to have Pinta meet with the parents might have succeeded. The two-headed living child is not very likely to reach America, but if it does, I'll risk its taking like a house afire. Today, if someone said they were purchasing a museum, we would probably take that to mean the whole building and collections. In Barnum's time, Purchasing a museum primarily meant the purchase of the collection and displays. Thus, when Barnum bought the American Museum in December of 1842, he was only buying the contents, not the building, which Francis W. Olmsted continued to own. Soon after, Barnum would become the owner of the former Peels Museum in New York, and the collection thus acquired was to serve both as a backup to be kept in storage in case his own was lost to fire, while portions of it would supplement or be used to rotate the items on display at the American Museum. When Rubens Peel gave up his museum a few years before, a man by the name of Seaman took over and sold stock to investors with the idea of turning the museum for a profit. Several of Barnum's letters to Hitchcock in the summer and fall of 1845 mention his concern with Seaman's asking price. Barnum was on the fence about the maximum he'd be willing to spend, Maybe $7,000? $8,000 was too high, he thought. As usual, he had advised Hitchcock to use his best judgment and do as he wished. Eventually, a deal was worked out, and Barnum wrote to Hitchcock on December 21, 1845, to say, I am rather glad that you have got Siemens Museum, for it will not bother me any more to think about it. Pray, what is he going to do with the building? Make some kind of show, I'll warrant. I hope you will not fail to make a feature of having bought and added the New York Museum to our American Museum, thus forming one of the most perfect collections in the world, and quite the most extensive in America. Crack up the National Portrait Gallery added to museum, etc., etc. Returning to practical matters, and the ever-present danger of losing everything to fire, he added, And you better not increase insurance on the museum, say $5,000, in consideration of Peel's, just as you please. 
All this, and a judgment against him pertaining to some years past when he worked with a merchant importer named Horace Fairchild, were keeping Barnum in a state. The situation appears to have been an attempt at extortion, as Barnum was certain he had fully paid off what he owed years ago, and bitterly declared it had been done at great sacrifice to his family. Fairchild was supposed to have paid his share, too. He told Hitchcock, I lost all that I had on earth by H. Fairchild, besides losing several years' valuable time by being engaged with that rascal. Once again, trusted museum manager Hitchcock was asked to intercede to resolve the thorny situation, with Barnum's guidance, proof that life in the past wasn't as simple as we often tend to think. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you want to support us, consider subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a review. It really helps us out. Now, let's dive into the next segment, An Array of Museums. Previously, we found P.T. Barnum feverishly writing to correspondents in America on New Year's Day in 1846, revealing tantalizing news of potential museum acquisitions, as well as a plaguing legal matter dating back to his days as a partner in a dry goods business. Now, catching up with him through his letters of January 5th and 20th, an unusually long gap between his letters, we are getting a more detailed picture of the triumphs and aggravations pertaining to his business in America. Barnum was now writing from the town of Dumfermline, Scotland, located just a few miles from Edinburgh, where he had spent the first five days of January. That was followed by a week in the city of Glasgow, about 40 miles southwest of Dunfermline. As always, Barnum was juggling more than would seem humanly possible for this time period, but there were occasions when he recognized his limits. And so, his letter of January 20th to the owner and curator of the Chinese collection in London explained his decision to decline a partnership offer, one he himself had sought out months earlier. William B. Langdon Esquire was the man to whom he wrote. Could I have foreseen the most distant probability of such a disposition of my affairs in America, I certainly should not have spoken to you so encouragingly about joining you. For if there is one thing in the world that I detest above all others, it is quibbling, and taking upon business matters merely for talk's sake. To prevent you thinking me a quibbler, I give you the reasons why my mind, or rather my determination, is changed in regard to the Chinese collection. It certainly was not the concept of exhibiting a Chinese collection that had become less desirable for Barnum, for in a recent letter to Moses Kimball, his showman friend in Boston, he had asked for help in acquiring suitable items directly from China. Ships from the Boston-Salem area of Massachusetts regularly sailed to the Far East, and Barnum wanted to obtain Chinese items of special interest, such as curiosities, or items of value and beauty, to feature in his museum, such as were then being displayed at the Chinese collection in downtown Boston, 1845 to 1847. Such exhibitions had become popular, apparently inspired by Quaker merchant Nathan Dunn's exceptional Chinese collection, first exhibited in Philadelphia in 1838 in a portion of Peel's Museum Building, and then sent to England in 1842. Langdon must have acquired it after Dunn's death in 1844 and was looking for a partner to invest in the purchase. Barnum's letters to Hitchcock in mid-September and mid-October of 1845 also refer to a Chinese collection in New York City that was about to open, 
wondering if it would help or hurt business at the American Museum. Barnum himself would later lease and then buy a Chinese collection, exhibiting it at 539 Broadway. As Barnum explained to Langdon, Since I saw you last, circumstances have transpired in America which would render it not only inexpedient, but almost impossible to engage in the Chinese collection or any other business. He went on to describe what had occurred, telling him, My American letters now lying before me, and which I only received this morning, inform me that my agent in New York has just succeeded in carrying out a design which I have long desired to accomplish. That desire was to become the proprietor of the different museums in New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. The news had come as a surprise, Barnum said, because so many impediments appeared to be in the way that I had little hope of accomplishing that desire at present. And then it all changed. It appears that American museum manager Fortis Hitchcock was an adroit dealmaker for his boss, for Barnum noted, There is a strong probability I now own a museum each in New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and New Orleans, and surely in all except the latter city. Obviously still digesting the stunning news, he explained to Langdon the reason New Orleans might soon be added to his holdings. My agent, having before purchased for me the contents of Peel's Museum in New York, was about to establish it in Philadelphia, unless the proprietors of the present Philadelphia Museum, fearing opposition from me, would sell at a fair price. As the steamer left with his letter, a negotiation was going on between the Philadelphia proprietors and my agent, and he felt certain that in ten days at farthest I should be the proprietor of that museum also, and in that event he should send my Peel collection to New Orleans, and there also have a museum opened for me. With all these major acquisitions afloat, Barnum had neither money available nor the bandwidth, as we say now, to engage in a partnership with Langdon as well. Most of my funds are firmly locked in bonds and mortgage security in America, and as most of the bonds have several years to run, I could not realize a large sum without probably selling my securities at a sacrifice. A few thousands of dollars uninvested in America with a few more thousands which I have here, I had wished to invest with you. But it must be quite obvious to you that I have not only strong calls for all of my loose capital, but that I have got at least quite as much business on my hands and mind as any man can do justice to. Apologetically, he added, I am sincerely regretting that I cannot join you in your enterprise, and hope that you may find the right kind of person to join you. Barnum was not being disingenuous for it appears that he and the Strattons, along with the boy's tutor, Mr. Sherman, had socialized with Langdon in London, probably the year they arrived, in 1844. Barnum sent their kind regards, and hoped they would have the opportunity to meet again when General Tom Thumb's entourage returned to London. That same year, 1844, proprietor Langdon published a descriptive catalog of the Chinese collection, which he was exhibiting at St. George's Place in Hyde Park Corner. A look at the 150-plus page catalog suggests it might have inspired Barnum's idea to produce a guidebook to his American museum, something he brought up in letters to Hitchcock and his promoter, C.D. Stewart. Langdon's exhibition would certainly have appealed to Barnum, whose own museum displayed a great range of objects, art, inventions, natural history specimens, and tableau with wax figures. The Chinese collection comprised 10,000 artifacts, ranging from the harvesting implements and clothing of humble farmers and boatmen to the exquisite and richly embroidered silks and other objects owned by the elite. 
many of the cases displayed life-size costumed figures in settings that showed their occupations or activities, such as a shoemaker at work and a wealthy gentleman carried in a sedan by servants, or settings such as a silk mercer's shop. The catalog author noted that the Chinese-made figures were modeled out of a particular species of clay suited to the purpose, and despite accurately representing living individuals, are characterized by a sameness of feature and expression. The catalog describes various Chinese inventions and even devotes one and a half pages to the preparation and use of opium to explain the pipes displayed. Explanations of the elaborate dinner and tea ceremonies merited longer entries in the catalog. Smaller cases displayed dozens of Chinese bird specimens and shells and the products of craftsmen such as silversmiths. All kinds of ships were depicted in the form of perfectly proportioned models, and at least one junk was entirely carved in ivory. In closing his letter, Barnum wished Langdon the best, telling him, I trust and believe your last display of the Feast of Lanterns will draw great crowds during the season, which is now commencing. Barnum turned to composing a more difficult letter. This was to John V. Beam, Esquire, in regard to the judgment Barnum found himself facing. A lawyer by the name of Brooks had informed him that Beam's partner, or former partner, L. Lyon, claimed Barnum and his former partner, Horace Fairchild, still owed them money. The amount was not trivial, $772.50, and Fairchild was now dead. Barnum had long since paid the amount Beam had agreed to accept from him in small installments, but he had no receipts to prove it. He had relied on Beam to make such endorsements in Mr. Lyon's letter as should fully and plainly show that neither him nor you had any farther claim on me. Whether Beam had done so, and whether Fairchild, whom Barnum described as a rascal, had ever paid his portion of the debt seems uncertain. Barnum pleaded with Beam, a man whom he believed to be honorable. I hope you will take the necessary steps to see the matter righted, and not have Mr. Lyon or any other person pretending to hold a claim against me which I have once paid according to agreement with you and to your satisfaction. I lost much money, some character, and much valuable time by that fair child who is now in his grave. I have paid money to you when I scarce knew where to find my next shilling for bread, but it's not necessary to enter at this time into farther details. L. Lyon and myself are not the very best of friends, and I should prefer to never hear farther from him. We have once or twice had hard words together, and if I again am forced into very close contact, either in person or in law, I think that neither of us will very soon forget it. Aside from that troubling issue, Barnum was largely back in his element after the tedious months spent in France, General Tom Thumb's return tour of the United Kingdom had started off fairly well, and as he told Langdon, We are doing a capital business through Scotland. Barnum was also thriving again on generating ways to promote and present his newly purchased novelties and attractions, suddenly finding he would have the opportunity to rotate them among several museums must have stimulated pride and an opportunity to exercise his ingrained Yankee hard bargaining habits. For example, the religious views he had purchased for the American Museum could subsequently be sent to the Baltimore Museum, where his uncle Allenson Taylor would be working, albeit with Barnum's man managing things. Since these dissolving views would be presented as a show, they needed a good narrator, which Barnum had advised Hitchcock to find. Now, 
Poking fun at Uncle Allenson's strong views on religion and his outspokenness, Barnum quipped, If Taylor is going it under good auspices in Baltimore, I expect the religious views will tell there when you have done with them in New York, and Taylor can lecture on them. Barnum also contacted friend Tyler again in London about the purchase of the large model of Venice. This time he increased his low-ball and rejected offer from 50 pounds to 70 pounds, and then to 75 pounds, to cover getting it on board a ship to New York. Barnum also asked that Tyler include the trestle supports, as well as any iron railings, glasses, lighting, and appurtenances, making sure it was packed so as not to get damaged, and to have the goodness to write my agent a letter, giving him every possible information about the size and shape of model, the manner of putting it up, etc. Further, any descriptions of the model and any of the puffs or advertising that Tyler had done should be sent along for Hitchcock to see. All in all, Barnum boldly asked for the deluxe package at 25 pounds less than the asking price of 100 pounds, though he had assured Hitchcock it was worth more. Exciting times ahead, as we, and Barnum, await news of the potential addition of New Orleans to the roster, and also learn how Uncle Allenson is faring with the Baltimore Museum. And let's not forget to give faithful Fortis Hitchcock the credit for pulling off these acquisitions in Barnum's absence. Thank you for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. Support for this episode is provided by the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum and based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pino, and narration is by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our COO. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and visit our YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Connect with us on social media and let us know what you think. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures with P.T. Barnum.